Devin, in regards to our conversation that we're going to have today, I just I was curious um, mm-hmm. because we made that mouse map last week. Uh, how many maps have you made for fictional landscapes? Oh goodness! Because um, I know you graduated uh, in you have a degree in geography. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I did most recently. I've done like four four for this mouse world. And that's just in the last month. Yeah. And then I've done like three or four for my series with Teleria. I I honestly couldn't tell you how many maps I've done just for for writing things. I'm just... Too many. Too many. I just, uh, you know, irrelevant, quote unquote, asterisk, irrelevant... Um, have you heard of world builders disease? <laughs> hey man, don't come at me with that term. <laughs> world builders disease is when you, you build a world and then you don't write in it. So you spend so much time building the world that you never sit down to actually write your story in it. And I will have, you know, that <laughs> most of the time, question mark, <laughs> asterisk, most of the time, my maps turn into stories. So I don't have world builder disease. All no. right. No, no. All right. We'll maybe see about that. But um, welcome back to Folded Sheets and Story Beats. Before we get going here, want to big want to give a big thanks to listener Kyle for the email he sent. Uh, he says he wanted us to know that he's thoroughly enjoyed all of our episodes for the past month or so, and how he you know he shared some thoughts with uh, what we talked about surprising and inevitable, or surprising but inevitable, and, and plot and all that stuff. And then uh, he says you know love it, keep it up, and then. He amended it and said, I amend my statement. I find that I am now upset because I have no more to listen to. So here is, here is more to listen to. This week, since we were, you know, speaking of world building disease and, and world building in general, we brought on a special guest this week with us. He is an old pal of mine. He has read some of the earliest of my works. He is a fellow Brandon Sanderson fanatic. Uh, and uh, just a very good friend to me. So, everyone say hello to Hiram. Hi, everybody. Hello, Hiram. Hi, Hiram. Yeah, I, I am definitely a victim of world builder's disease. <laughs> I don't think I will ever publish a work, but I like to think I have some good ideas. So. Before before we started recording, Hiram offered to just like make ideas for me so that I could write them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> it's not a bad it's not a bad trade. So we have done episodes about plot. We, we did a couple episodes about plot, about what sort of the finer aspects of plot are and like promise, progress, and payoff. We've talked about character. We specifically talked about competent characters. This week, we wanted to go into a little bit about setting and uh, exploring how fantasy authors specifically go about creating their settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. We were like, yeah, what are we going to talk about today? It's like, well, we already talked about it's like what are what are the three basic parts of a story? You've got your your plot, your 
character you're setting and it's like yeah we talked plot we've talked some about characters setting that's a boring conversation yeah and <laughs> you know this, this podcast is basically it's like 80 percent regurgitated information that we learned from sanderson's <laughs> class i don't think you could say that can i not is it not true <laughs> i don't think you can we can't admit it <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that much, but a lot of what we say we learned from Brandon Sanderson. And in his class, he doesn't spend a huge amount of time on setting. And Mm -hmm. it's because he says that of those three plot character setting, it's the least important. If you can, if you can only have two to be good, make Mm -hmm. it your plot and your characters because your Mm -hmm. setting is, is the least important of those. I've seen entire plays where there's not a single piece of scenery or anything. It's all just the actors pantomiming, and yet it's a a well-produced play that has very important story beats because you care about the characters and what they're doing, the plot of what's going Mm -hmm. on. So it definitely is the the least important of those. Mm -hmm. That said, if uh, I think one of the reasons fantasy is, has such a cult following um, is because setting is one of the things that shines through. Uh, I was thinking about like, what if there was any other genres that really rely on world building, on on having a good setting. And I think like a lot of probably historical fiction um, relies on getting you getting your setting right. But like over, I think fantasy really is the one that puts the most probably the highest word count per book into explaining where we are and like what's going on. Yeah, sci-fi fantasy does. That's part of the. It's part of the genre. Yeah, I'd say so, that's in large part because the setting for a historical novel. I mean, you know what Earth is. You know roughly where Europe is. You know roughly. Right. Yeah. You don't need to give nearly as much detail about where something is if there's a layer of familiarity to it. Yeah, if you're explaining the streets of Paris for a really long time, you're wasting time. No one cares. Well, yeah. Unless you, you know, learned about geography in the American school system, because then you don't know where anything is. You don't even know where all the states are. Well, you play Assassin's Creed once and you're set, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what Rome was like in the 1500s. I played Assassin's That's Creed. What, I played Assassin's I know. I know what's going on. So um, we've used, we've tossed this word around world building, um, but let's do, let's lay a, a ground foundation what is world building? So I'd say that world building is creating uh, creating a location for your events to take place. But more than that, it's about creating how that location has shaped the people and cultures that are being interacted with. Mm. Um, the You wouldn't have London where it is if it wasn't on a river. You wouldn't have Paris where it is if it... I guess also was on a river. Also wasn't on a river. <laughs> but uh, just the, Usually the, the fact that uh, cities show up where they do for a reason, that people gather, people interact with each other in certain places in certain ways because of the environment around them. Mm-hmm. I um, For some reason, maybe because it's like one of my favorite movies ever, but um, I was thinking about how the setting plays into the film How to Train Your Dragon mm-hmm. um, and how the film starts with Hiccup just saying, this is Burke. It's awful. (laughs) Everything sucks. Uh, And by the way, there's dragons. They steal our sheep. Um, I thought, I was just thinking about how that is 
that setting is probably this one of the stronger aspects of that film because everyone in, and their dog wants to s- learn about dragons and see dragons and watch them breathe fire and see all kinds of different breeds of dragons. And mm-hmm. so having a, a village set into a cliff face trying to fend off consistent dragon raids is a that's a very good setting that's mm-hmm. good world building and the fact that it's on an island where they can't just walk away if mm-hmm. things get annoying mm-hmm. but they're they're mm-hmm. here this is this is our island this is where we are we're stuck here let's fight dragons exactly and that influences the characters in the story all of them are these like hard-headed vikings like very very stubborn unwilling to change their ways because I think it's a reflection of their environment. They really have not been able to change their ways in yeah. a very long time. And so that's, yeah, that ties in well to the characters and the plot. The plot is also about, hey, we got to change our ways. Yeah. World building also is, it's more than just like physical or even human geography, which we're going to talk about some geography. Trust me, I, I love me some geography. But, <laughs> uh, you know, to use that example of how to train your dragon, world building also goes into all of the different species of dragon, right? There are so many kinds and variations and, mm-hmm. and all of that, all of the types of dragons and everything like that, that is all world building too. It's more than mm-hmm. just the, oh, you know, here is these islands and there are dragons, and, you know, that kind of thing. World building can be pretty all-encompassing, yeah. Yeah, you get that flavor of no one had ever seen a Night Fury before Hiccup knocked Toothless out of the sky. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get that... that little bit of extra flavor of yeah the dragons you have all these different kinds of dragons but we've never seen this one and Mm -hmm. that's what makes the whole plot so much more meaningful i think one of the coolest parts of that film was when he's sitting in the pub after dark reading the book about dragons and he's just listing off the names Mm -hmm. the whispering death the bone napper like it's just like it turns its victims inside out like he's just like he it's just pure world building and it's a lot of fun to see this put on screen and it just it really increases the depth of your world yeah your character's sitting reading a book how exciting is that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah it's cool it it's funny too because like i'm just thinking we mentioned that like of your three setting is the least important and like sanderson doesn't devote a whole lot of time to teaching setting in his class and yet when you look at his books one of the, <laughs> one of the key drawing features of a sanderson book is you're gonna get some really cool world building it's just kind of goes hand in hand sanderson and world building which is kind of ironic but let's talk if you know sanderson is a good example of his world building he tends to be on this kind of sliding scale this idea of hard versus soft world building. Sanderson tends to be pretty hard on on that scale. Yeah, I think like Stormlight obviously is the the big obvious very hard world building. The whole world everything about this world is foreign. Um I guess we should probably really quick define hard versus soft. I I'm going to be honest, I only learned the difference between these today. But um, so I, I'll ask Hiram to explain the difference. So this was a, a term I picked up uh, just browsing the internet, uh, as you do. Um, but it's kind of a sliding scale of, I'd almost refer to it as a sliding scale of familiarity. The more like home, the more like what you know about Earth the something is, then the softer the world building. 
Um, this is separate from magic systems, where like you can have magic doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But if the world is familiar, if you understand, oh, he did this, and this will interact with the world in this way, then that's softer world building. But mm -hmm. if it's uh, harder world building, um, oh, it's a dog. Oh, wait, it's a crab. But they're treating it like a dog. That would be more harder world building of you lose that familiarity. Everything's a little bit more alien. Mm -hmm. Or a lot more alien in the case of Crustacean World, which is the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Everything there is crabs even some of the people kind of <laughs> but crabs for days crabs for days i thought warbreaker and like maybe elantris were some of his harder ones i don't know uh like warbreaker is all about colors and had a pretty largely influenced the uh, the people and the setting were influenced by their their Religious devotion to colors? I don't know. That's a hard I, yeah, one to explain. Yeah, I'd kind of disagree with that one because, like, you have the culture, which is pretty alien to us. However, uh -huh. the world itself is pretty straightforward. You have mm -hmm. people of different nations, people of different races. They're gathering in this place because of a resource, the dyes and everything that that are so important to color. But the people are still people. Like, the, there's racism, there's biases, but all the problems that they're facing on a personal level are natural to us the whole question of warbreaker is okay do we go over go to war over the our religious differences or uh do we do something else but it's not a matter of oh the world is ending because of this unforeseen force that people on earth have no idea what to deal with mm -hmm. yeah that does sound that does sound softer you're you're right yeah warbreaker and elantris for the most part you could you know if you the reader were to just drop into this world you wouldn't catch any any weird looks or anything because you would look like those people. You drop <laughs> into Roshar, the world of the Stormlight Archive, people are probably going to look at you funny because they're not... Even the humans there are not quite Fully the humans human. we're used to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... And ev you would be tripping like crazy going to Roshar in particular. One that... Um, another of his examples, so his his graphic novel White Sands set on a world called Taldane. That one is A in a binary system, so there's two suns, and it is tidally locked between the two. So one is one side is always in the daylight and one is always in the nighttime, quote unquote. That one has a much darker star and so like there's still UV radiation getting to the dark side, but it's not light. And so like that is that's crazy too as far as settings go like that is yeah. so wild and and it was super alien to us i mean yes the people there are generally human mm -hmm. but you can't just go to that world and expect you know what's going on you're going to say why does the sun never rise or why does the sun never set mm -hmm. uh it's also important that the the two are divided by a ring of storms and things so oh, it's not yeah, like yeah. you can just hop one to the other you get there and you don't understand what's going on because the daylight doesn't ever change. Mm. I should read that. That's a good one. Yeah. So some softer, other popular series, um, Harry Potter, then would absolutely be soft world building because mm -hmm. it's it's on Earth. It's urban fantasy, but we yeah. are urban wizards. Fantasy tends to be pretty soft as far as world yeah. building goes because mm -hmm. the that's kind of the idea of urban fantasy is it's this fantasy story but we're going to set it on earth and there's a number of different variations, but one of the more common one is 
you know, there's this secret hidden magical world slash society here on earth. And I'm going to tell you this story because this is, you know, Mm -hmm. this is how it actually is kind of thing. Fable Haven. Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Harry Potter. Those are all pretty soft. Yeah. Generally, it's, uh, it's generally safe to say if your setting is earth, it's a softer world building because you're not building the world. You're building a culture or a subset to go into the world rather than building your own system. And Got the it. more like Earth, the more familiar, the the softer your world system is, I'd say. Yeah. And the softer your world building, the easier it will be for your readers or your audience to get into the world building. And because sometimes world building can be kind of a hurdle. Like if you pick up the Stormlight Archive, A, that's a massive book, The Way of Kings, book one. It has like three starts because there's, yeah, there's a, a prologue and a prelude and a chapter one, and you don't meet the first character until chapter two or something. So it's like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of hurdles going into that book anyways. And then you're on a crab world. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, there's a very steep learning curve for that book and having a real hard world building going on in your story is only going to steepen that learning curve. So not to mention a lot of the problems that those characters face, um, even just the day-to-day problems are completely alien to the, uh, the reason they're all crabs is because there's massive storms that blow through Mm -hmm. that we just don't have a direct comparison to. And so, um, you need that extra writing that those extra, 300 pages to describe the world because otherwise mm-hmm. your readers won't understand why are they putting boards up on their carriage and locking it down? It's because a storm comes through every 10 days or so. Yeah. Magic super hurricane that crosses the whole of the planet every you know week or something like that. So, yeah. And so, and, and in the story the that, that one storm that hits the world every so often, it influenced the whole world so much that, Buildings don't have a window on a certain side because this this storm always comes from the same from it the west. Always or something. comes in from the east. Yeah, it always comes in from the east. So all the buildings are built to be able to take this storm, and so everywhere you go in this whole world, in the story, is everything faces west because it's it's built to withstand this west-driven storms. Yeah. But even storms. even things like all of the plants can like move because mm-hmm. they there's no there's no dirt everything is stone and the plants like blades of grass live inside little holes they're all like moving in stuff because they if you don't move you get wrecked by this storm and so all of the plant life all of the animal life people everything has ways to mm-hmm. survive the storm and so one of the methods of execution is to just leave somebody outside during one of these storms. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then there, it's kind of a, a sliding scale because then you get something, um, again referring to Brandon Sanderson, more like the the world of Mistborn, which mm-hmm. is basically Earth after uh, in in the second series. I, I don't know if there's I don't want to give people any spoilers, but there's kind of two series. The second series is super earth-like but the series before there's a whole bunch of like volcanoes everywhere and and things like that that make Mm -hmm. it so this should be familiar but it's not and so 
Um, like Brandon Sanderson himself has described this planet as his most Earth-like. However, if you just read the first three books, you have no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. It's still pretty alien. However, most of the fundamental laws of nature all seem to, to continue to apply. Like You see creatures that uh, are scavengers and things just like we would have. Um, they may look different, but they serve the same roles and functions and things like mm. that. Yeah, that one's fun because it, it is fairly... It's it's an, a very Earth-like planet, except that there's this ash always kind of just falling from the sky, which mm-hmm. is like it's like okay, cool. So that's it's definitely like oh, I understand how you know, obviously I understand how Earth works, but it's like you've got this one fairly major element that's like really different and like mm-hmm. plays a pretty important part in in the actual story. Yeah, so like Mistborn series one is has a lot of very hard world building because because everything has sort of had to ha- adapt to the ash falling from the sky all the time, um, and the towns and the townspeople have sort of all like even cultivating food is is very much hindered by the fact that ash is always falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment you get to Mistborn series two, it's a little bit softer world building, and yet the people there are trying to adjust to this new life. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they, having come from this background of ruggedness and roughness that once they get to a place that's more like our world, it's much more paradisiacal, it's an adjustment for them. Uh, their culture hasn't expanded and grown because they found a place where they're happy, content, and safe and uh, haven't bothered to expand because it's just too much work and they've just come from a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So let's um, let's talk about when you are building a world. Uh-huh. How do you, what what things do you need to sort of start to pay attention to 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 enhance the story? Mm. I'm thinking politics, religion, magic, geography. Here's here's an example. Um, in Brandon's podcast last week, God, we talk about Brandon Sanderson so much. We're such fat nerds. In his podcast last week, he talked about this. He had this bad story idea where he said, "What if there was a world that was being pushed around another world, um, kind of like a dung beetle." just rolling rolling a world around and the people on the smaller sphere had to sort of live with the fact that like a giant hand would come down and like move like smash things and then like there's like a track maybe that the like if you were going to build a world like that like how would you make that work Hmm. that's sort of he was thinking about that what what a ridiculous geography idea but how on earth could i make this work so that i could tell a story on this ridiculous world yeah he talked about, well, the people there would need to, well, they'd need to, their buildings would probably be pretty, they'd have to be mobile, right? Because they, they didn't want to just crush every building and then have to rebuild, right? So they want these buildings to be able to move. Constantly and, circling the globe. Uh, mm-hmm. And what resources would they get uh, from smashing things on the other world, right? Like what if freaking, and Dan Wells was like, the, uh, th- what if this world was smashing bugs uh-huh. and we are collecting bugs from the other world? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it would influence. Uh, you, you need to pay attention to the fact that your world building will influence every facet of life. Um, like you, you have this moving culture that always is watching for a giant hand moving the world. Well, you're probably gonna have a religion pop up of worshiping this giant hand and mm. you seeing it as a force for change. Mm-hmm. Maybe a, a rival religion popping up and seeing it as a force of destruction. We have to kill the giant hand. You know there would be people trying to do that. Uh Uh-huh. Or, I mean, you can get into, like, 
So that's a that's an example of how world building might affect religion. How about economics? You know, what what resources are you getting from the part where like in that like Dan Wells was saying is like, yeah, you know, what you know, maybe the the bug carapace is like really valuable for some reason and so it's like what kind of industry is going to pop up that's just following right behind the point where you've you're rolling along this larger planet of like getting all that crushed material and then using it and you know now you've got i don't know uh carapace based you know weapons and economic armor and, system and yeah. yeah like and what if you had one person who managed to build a bunker so that when their part of the world went underneath and came up they survived would they become this massive savior would they be uh would they be this lauded as a, a hero or would this be uh completely terrifying would this be would they be an insane person demon. who's a, a end of the world or like how, how we people here tend to treat zombie apocalypse preppers or something like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah i think we we started off talking about maps and geography and I mean, I I graduated with a degree in geography. I do enjoy maps and, and that kind of thing. But, like, for me, if you really want to ground me in your world building, give me a map. Give me a map, and I'll look at it, and I can just absorb so much info, and I can learn a lot. And just, yeah. Because if, if it's a map that's really, quote-unquote, Earth-like, that tells me a lot and I can look at that and I can understand it. If it's a map that is, is very different from earth, if there's, what if this earth, what if this planet is, is actually flat? You know, what if it's flat and then how does that affect everything? You know, that just physically, but also socially, like that's going to be crazy. And conversely, you can use that same, the, the reverse to kind of cast someone adrift of, uh, people haven't communicated, people haven't been able to develop maps, or maybe the place that you're at has no real ability to stay the same way. What if it's constantly changing? Mm. You can't really get a map, and so it makes your world feel more alien. It makes it so much harder to know, okay, where exactly am I going? Are travel times different every week? Or, or am I going to be able to get to the same place again twice? Uh, are people then more important? Uh, are there communities that once you find the community, you know, you're there rather than, uh, finding landmarks. Mm. I'm, I'm writing a book right now called last light. And, um, the whole story so far has taken place in a single Valley. And one of the key components of this Valley is that nobody can leave. Um, and there's literally, there's a barrier around the outside and you can't leave. Um, and another part of the world is that everything that dies will turn into a giant monster. Um, if the body is not dealt with um, accordingly, like burnt or something to make it so that it won't do that. Um, and so I, those two simple things have really just like made telling the story really interesting because, well, can we have leather? Well, probably not because everything that dies needs to be burned. We can't really take things off bodies. We don't have the time to do that. Um, and, hmm. And can we can we have books? You know, I, do we? I, it's it, our valley is too small to be making paper, and so you know, how do we how do we do that? And so hmm. these, I I have found myself 
in this draft, not caring so much uh, <laughs> and deciding that I'll deal with it later. But these questions have like really just sort of been swirling around in my head, you know, because I have these two major components, A, you can't leave and B, everything that dies turns into a monster. Um, we, how does that affect everyday life? And it does. It's, it's monumental. Yeah. I think one of the key questions of world building then is if I make this fundamental change to the world that my characters live in, how is the rest of the world affected by it? Uh, you can't. Yeah. You if you make a massive change, and honestly, magic systems kind of do that. If I make it so that people can ignore gravity and fly around, how is the world different because of it? Yeah, it mm. and it absolutely should. Like, if 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 it doesn't have an effect, then why did you put it in? Right? Because mm. mm-hmm. if if you know, in that example, if people can just ignore gravity and fly around if that doesn't have effects on society and transportation and that kind of thing, why, why did you do it? Yeah. Why do people still have cars in your story? If people can fly around? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like you need to adjust the rest of the story accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, my, my, I have an example of that. So in this big epic fantasy that I'm trying to write that I realized that I don't have the skill for yet. And so I've tabled it until later, but the magic system, which, I mean, we're not specifically talking magic systems here, but magic definitely falls under world building. Mm -hmm. But my magic system is based on music. And I determined that not only is music magic, it is, there is no normal music. And so this is a world that is, for all intents and purposes, tone deaf. That just people don't. The on, only the magicians understand music and can use that. And so, and I, I decided that, and then I immediately regretted it because I started like <laughs> considering what does a society, what does a world look like that doesn't have music? I I couldn't find like I can't find any Earth cultures that don't have music in some form or another. Mm-hmm. It is a huge part of what we do and, and who we are as humans here on earth. But like, what would it be like to have just a whole entire planet where music is just not really a thing unless it's, you know, the magical kind. And so I imagine that you probably have a lot more emphasis on like the visual arts and mm-hmm. like, so the, I, I imagine clothing is up probably really bright. There's probably really cool, like architecture, you know, other ways for people to express that aspect of poetry you know, art and flowery and, speech. Yeah, exactly. Because there's, there's no songs in the way we normally think about them because there's no music. There's no, like, what would dancing look like without music? That's weird. There, like there is dancing without yeah. music, but it's weird. It's bizarre. Like it's so. very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's one of the primary reasons that I realized I am not currently equipped to write this story because that's funny. Whew, bit off more than I could chew with that music thing. That's funny. All right, it's time for our laundry tip. Um, so I, I have to posit a question before you boys. Um, what do you do if you find yourself in a world without bleach in it? Hmm. For some reason, this world you are in now, there's no bleach. Say goodbye to the color white. Yeah. Everything is going to be some off variation. It's not going to look good. Well, I'm going to tell you how to get stains out of your clothes 
with fake bleach and honestly pee on it in this world if there's no bleach you just said that <laughs> in this world if there's no bleach if you find yourself in a world without bleach laundry tip pee on it okay why is that don't ask that's a that's a state secret well if we go back and look at some you know more familiar uh earth-based cultures the romans they collected pee because in fact you can yeah is it the it's the ammonia in it i think right yeah yeah you get the ammonia out and you can use that for for cleaning and for laundry and stuff the romans had a pee tax fun fact there you go that's our laundry tip. No wonder we Let's always picture them in white togas. Can you imagine walking through the market, the smell? <laughs> I don't know the actual science behind how you get the ammonia out of pee, but I know that it is a thing. I know you can do that. The Romans had it all figured out, honestly. They, they really they were did. the best at everything. And those guys, they just, of society. they just did it. We've been going downhill ever honestly, since. Honestly, kind of, kind of a little bit bringing it back to world building. I think part of why so many cultures have this idea of... of uh, an ancient civilization that has so much more advanced technology is because they were literally living in the shadows of the aqueducts. Like mm. no one knew how to build them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. This has been our laundry tip. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if I uh, mixed that up a little bit. I got, I lost the Sorry. real purpose of the podcast. I, I kind of got distracted. Yeah. No, 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 we forgive you. We forgive you. It is easy to get bogged yeah. down by the story stuff, mm-hmm. but we do. We do try to bring it back to the laundry. Yeah, this this is a laundry podcast. So, laundry podcast with a sprinkle of storytelling flavor, a tinkle of story. Shut up! No, <laughs> <laughs> this is one that I can't tell my mom to watch. She'll be like, "You made pee jokes? Gross!" Everybody does it, especially the Romans. Apparently, especially they were good at it too. <laughs> the oh best. They were the best. I want to talk about maps again. All right, Devin. Send it. I'm going to let you talk about maps again. So, yeah, I I mean, when don't I want to talk about maps? I have this thing where, and you were right to call me out at the beginning because I have done a lot of maps. And that is because my brain works a special way. I'm so special. Look at you. So special. Yeah, if I'm trying to write a story, well... If I, I got to name my characters, right? Well, if I want to name my characters, I need to know like about the culture and the society that they come from, right? Well, if I want to know about the culture and society that my characters are based in, I need to know about the geography, right? I need to know what, what you have a problem. I I need to know how (laughs) the geography has influenced these people. And so it means it always boils down to needing to do a map. That's just how my brain works. And so when I sit down to write a story, that'll, that'll typically be the first thing I do is I will draw up some kind of map and I'll throw, you know, I'll just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And then based on that, I will be like, okay, cool. So there's probably some people that live here and I think they're probably like this. And because I know that, well, um, you know, let's throw in some real life influences, you know, uh, this is, you know, maybe this is kind of like a mix of like maybe Spain and Italy. And so the culture probably, you know, it's like, okay, so, 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 well, you know, Teleria, that's a good sounding name. Yeah. Teleria. Well, what do people in Teleria, what are their names like? Um, Marcus, Stefania, boom. There are my, my protagonists named them. 
Yeah. When I was writing Guardian the first time, I um, or maybe a little bit after I wrote it, but as I was working on it, I drew a map mm. of the world. And it's one of the finest maps ever created. It is a rectangle <laughs> cut into four. Riveting. Uh, absolutely riveting. Four about equal sizes. And uh, they would be I equal threw some if names you could draw on better. there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> they weren't even equal. <laughs> and that was about when I learned um, I am not inspired when it comes to map making. Cartography is hard, man. Cartography is hard. But when I revisited, um, I, I, and when I came back and really sort of dove into this story, um, one of the huge things that really made an impression on me was the fact that I wanted a large portion of the world to be a, a super city. Um, and I realized that I was going to have to write a cyberpunk story because if it's a super city and we're going to do, I want high tech, um, that probably means I want low life uh, in a lot of places. And uh, that was probably one of the foundational realizations to this story um, because that was when I really changed some of the lamer aspects of the yeah, story. It was originally supposed to be this like utopic society exactly. uh, that just didn't work on in a real character sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh yeah, I when I first started on on the world was called Haven. Uh Haven was like it was supposed to be like an idyllic afterlife. Um and it wasn't until I started working on draft two that I was like, no, I really want this afterlife to be a seriously flawed system. Um, I guess we're sort of, we've, we've gone into, uh, how have we done it? Let's, let's give some more of these examples. Mm. Um, I already talked a little bit about Teleria music based magic system. That one, that, that is the one where, like I said, I, I sat down to, I was on my mission and I just had this, story bouncing around in my head and so i was like you know what i need to get i need to get some names written down and then i can just leave it be until i get home and then i can try and write this freaking story but yeah mm -hmm. that involved making a map and yep marcus and mm -hmm. stefania um one of elay's earlier stories that he doesn't really claim anymore um the, the main <laughs> character was in a was a high school kid got in a car accident hit his head and it gave him superpowers uh, like activated his brain or something and that was an interesting mix of like basically it was soft magic because he lives on earth he he does all these things he he's able mm -hmm. to teleport so he travels the world um however the magic completely changed his perspective and how how he envisioned the world um i'm giving it probably a little more credit than it was due it was pretty pretty yeah, simple pretty say, basic you're making this thing sound really intelligent <laughs> i it was the first book i ever wrote about ninety thousand words i had a lot of fun writing it it's the story that turned me into an author is it that good no no <laughs> <laughs> it was cool it was like i mean the, like topical of me to write a story about this very overpowered superpower superhero mm -hmm. who can teleport and he can like deflect bullets Had absolutely and no he limitations. can yeah no, no limitations and like when i wrote out how the rest of his story would go after the book he's like ultimately <laughs> just like becomes a god because like he is just unstoppable what? that doesn't and, sound like you at all <laughs> that, you've never it, written it, overpowered characters before it was very telling of my style that i like to take a character and just give them everything mm -hmm. yeah and that only works if the entire world is trying to kill you yeah or if you're 
or if you're, and I've said this before, if your um, conflict is not a physical conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What else? I wrote a book, uh, or see, I guess I can't say I wrote the book. I've got pretty far into a book before I put it down. Um, it had a very long title. The title was, <laughs> oh, uh, let's see. Due to the immense headache it has given me, I cannot in good conscience recommend purchasing a wife. It was a story about a uh, very ultra-powerful entity that um, came to Earth, called himself God, and then role-played as as a bunch of different (laughs) citizens in the world, Um, introduced magic to Earth, um, and then the story takes place about 300 years later. Um, and that one was a lot of fun. The world building was I had to take Earth and I had to take um, what like what were the political boundaries 300 years ago? Um, and I had to apply those to the year 2007 or whatever. And I had to take, OK, what if there was one super powerful God that lived among the civilians and and intentionally wanted like was making the world a better place was raiding, um, like lit- raising literacy, um, was removing world hunger was raising like education and things. Um, but also he was a god who conquered the world, so the people don't like him that much. Um, <laughs> didn't and the, it, didn't I help you make a map for this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you did. Yes, I did. We did make a map for this. I remember sitting down and doing that. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That was a fun story. The world building there was really interesting in regards to what different kinds of magics there were suddenly and how the people of Earth would react to having a total but benevolent dictator who had essentially all the power. That was a fun story. It was fun. Yeah. The plot was, I am God, what is romance? (laughs) (laughs) It's very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That makes me uh, think of uh, another story I read um, where some characters are using an old map to explore uh, a a bit of the countryside. And they get to a forest like 300 miles before they expect that they should. And they're like, "Um, this doesn't make sense. I mean, this map is old, but it's not... It's not 300 miles of forest out of date. And then someone points out, well, because th- they're, they're from Earth coming into this world. Uh, mm-hmm. Magic's a thing. I'm pretty sure with the magic you've learned already, you could do some major geographical changing things. You're like, yeah, that's a good point. What, the forest can grow that much faster than I'm used to. Hmm. That's oh, interesting. Man. What, if, what if, rather than grow in the traditional sense, what if your forests just are migratory? You just walk around. around. Yeah. Migratory. Oh, man, that's so fun. And then you've got, like, tree shepherds. Not like the ant kind. Or maybe, yes, like the ant kind. That's exactly what the ants are, yeah. Yeah. Bighorn moves over to go kill the orcs at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Exactly. What if that was every forest on your world? They all just move around. Yeah. God, that'd be so much fun. They would probably take big issue with you building houses of wood. They probably would not like that. Yeah. Would deserts if be a trees thing, can or would, would it just be zones that the trees avoid so people settle in deserts so they don't have to deal with the mm. forest moving through their town? Interesting. You imagine you wake up and there's just a freaking sequoia tree planted right in front of your front door. Ah, crap. Ah, crap. How am I going to get to work? See, one, one little change in your entire society has to change. World mm. building. World building. I'm trying to think. Um, <clears throat> the uh, so I'm working on 
it's a side project kind technically and i haven't yeah i'm not going to get into why i have writer's block right now but <laughs> this side project that i'm working on because i obsessed with the idea of like you know that like like Redwall or like the tale of despero you know like the little little mouse people Mouse people. Mouse people. My brain obsessed with that for like a month straight. And so I sat down and I was like, I'm just going to have to write a story based on this to, to scratch that itch. And so this is a world that I actually convinced most people in my writing group to join me in as the sort of collaborative storytelling. Hey, that's another episode we've done before. But <laughs> it's, it's this mouse world where we're all technically in the same world. We sat down to establish some basic rules for the world and so like no humans there are no humans now there have never been humans the only sapient creatures are rodents and lagomorphs because bunnies are apparently not rodents anymore but yeah, we wanted weird. but we wanted rabbits to be we wanted, sapient. yeah civilized, <laughs> civilized rabbits so we made lagomorphs and rodents um but yeah so then like everybody's i made a map and then people <laughs> pointed out where on the map they wanted to set their story. And then they and then started more writing. Maps. And so, and then, yeah, made more maps based on the <laughs> first map. But yeah, so that's a fun one where, just, yeah, just like every, the mice and, and rodents and things are sapient. They're civilized. But all of the plants are still normal sized. All of the other animals are still normal sized. So like uh, the scene that I just wrote. I've got my little mouse character and she's, you know, walking along the road doing her thing for the story or whatever. And, uh, she passes a, like a farmstead, one of her neighbors who they are in the midst of harvesting cattails. And so they're, they've got like some saws out there cause they're like chopping down this big old cattail, which then falls down and they go and collect all the little cottony stuff to, because then they take that one single cattail, like all of that cotton. And then they, you know, process it and, and make clothing out of it and stuff. So it's like, it's like, Oh, and you know, her, she, uh, my main character lives on a farm with her family and they produce, um, like wines and jellies and, and brandies and things like that from these, these berry bushes, but they're, the bushes are huge. And then when she goes into town to deliver her goods and sell things at the market, she gets in her wagon loaded up and then she straps it to an ox beetle named Mo. And that's how she pulls her, her wagon around because, you know, domesticated animals, but for mice. So you're, when you changed, it's like, I feel like when you get to this level, it's like, you're not really cha like instead of humans, they're mice, but the mice are still mouse sized. Yeah. Um, you have to then adapt the entire world. I feel like this conversation, it's tricky to talk about world building in a sort of like a directive, like this is how you world build because there's really not one way to do it. Mm -hmm. It's really, you need to come up with the things that are going to be changing everything else. The forces that are independent, um, that are changing other things. Uh, you know, if your trees move, then how's that going to change your world? If everything that dies turns into a monster, How's that going to change your world? If you, your people can't leave, how's that going to change your world? If there's a, a storm that comes through every week, how's that going to change your world? Um, and so world building is a tricky conversation because you can't just say, this is how you do it. Because there's not really a way to do it. It's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of careful 
in, in deliberate thought. Yeah, it's like create one cool idea and then do hours and hours and hours of problem solving because yep. it's, mm-hmm. even exactly. though it's a cool idea, how's it going to work? Uh-huh. Because you also have to then build the history of the world around this this big independent force that is that is altering the way people's lives are lived. And I, I want to push back on that real quick. You don't have to do that. You don't have to create pages and pages of backstory and history, and you don't mm-hmm. have to design like if you're if you're sitting down to run a D and D campaign or to write a little story about mice, you don't have to sit down and write pages and pages of you know. I'm, I don't have to dis, uh, I don't have to come up with the socio you know socioeconomic system of cattail farmers you know mm-hmm. you can but you don't have to do that which is again True. why setting is the least important of the three parts of a story yeah but yeah, it is fun the, to do it is fun to it's do. the ice it's the iceberg phenomenon right like it with setting and world building you really can just create the tip of the iceberg and imply that there's more beneath the surface and you can get away with that yeah even if if the ice the iceberg might be hollow but you want you can give that illusion that it is in fact a full iceberg yeah tolkien and sanderson are two like uh, at least in in our circles the big names in fantasy and they've really done most authors a disservice because they i mean (laughs) if you look at tolkien he wasn't a storyteller first and foremost the hobbit was bedtime stories for his son Mm -hmm. it was but that was an outlet for this world that he was creating which really came down to language for him he was a linguist who decided oh "Oh, let me make a language okay that sounds really cool let me apply it to this setting um but and that's why he created these worlds and cultures and stuff however if you look at uh harry potter which is a massive bestseller the world is not fleshed out on harry potter in fact the more that jk rowling fleshes it out like online and stuff the more people are turning away from it and being less Mm -hmm. and less happy with her if you just look at the world as presented in Harry Potter, the story holds up great, even though mm-hmm. the details don't necessarily. Yeah. When you, that one's a funny one. Cause it's like, you look at the, the monetary system that she made up for the wizarding world. It's like, what? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's so dumb. <laughs> it makes zero sense, but it's cool because it's wizards and it's you know, different. we just, Oh yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Sure. The wizard thing. Yes. Yeah. She leads in, leans into the weird um, and then uh, doesn't put up with the consequences of how the weird will affect other things. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's fun to pick apart, the story still holds up just fine. Was wildly successful for her. Um, when I... Uh, we talked a little bit about Guardian. I want to talk a little bit more about Guardian, about one of my my major trilogy that I've been working on for years now, mm-hmm. um, and about how the major independent force... In the story is that everyone is dead. This is the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the world building really had to come down to, okay, what does the system look like after you die? If every soul keeps living after it dies, um, what is the system? And how how are souls divided? How does judgment work? Um, what does what does immortality look like? What is uh, what can a person do with an immortal body? Uh, how how you know how how are cultures continued to be represented? in this world, you know? And so that was, all of this was, it was a lot for me to undertake because I was a new author and I'm still a new author. Um, and it's, it's a lot, a lot of work. Um, but it's, 
the question of how, what does this afterlife look like still like is in my head when I drive around because what little things are going to be changing um, in a world that everyone's immortal. Um, they don't need resources to live anymore. They mm-hmm. live independent of anything. Um, and what have they been, what have people been doing for the past thousands and thousands of years while more people have just been dying and have been adding to the population. Um, and so that was a big world building and continues to be a big world building project for me as I sort of endeavor to figure out what on earth a dystopian fantasy afterlife is going to look like. It seems that the more you change, the more time you have to devote to it. Um, yeah. It's one thing to say, magic's real, uh, I'm going to tell the story. It's another thing to say, okay, here's mm-hmm. a world. This giant what is it floating look like? rock in space. Yeah, here's a giant rock. I am. I will now explain every detail of this rock. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're Terry Pratchett, here's a giant disc on the back of a tortoise walking through space. Great Atuan tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> disc wor- like the disc world is a, a fantastic example of world building. I mean, Hiram, you were telling us before yeah, the show. If you read the, I, I've read a, I've read a number of the the disc world novels, and like the first couple books is just like, yeah, nope, this is a thing. Uh, there's some people who are like. Uh, trying to dangle off the edge of the world to find out if the turtle's uh, male or female. <laughs> it, it never comes up again. It's just like, okay, this is the thing. But like, the longer he goes, uh, the more, uh, the like, the longer he builds into Discworld, the more scientific things he has to say. Like, there's like one major continent and another continent, but if you try to balance the plate with fo- all the food on one end, it doesn't work. So the the smaller continent is full of gold to help balance out the weight. Um, or, like, because it's a disc, do you have time zones and day-night cycles properly? Well, yeah, time uh, the magic in the air slows the the speed of light, and so it hits here differently than it hits oh. here. Just a whole bunch of random nonsense in order that, because he wrote 40-some-odd books in this world, he answered all those questions eventually, but in the premise of each individual story, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I, I like I still don't know if the turtle's male or female because <laughs> those people all died. Whoop de doo. That's funny. Yeah. I guess if we're gonna, you know, if we wrap up the this idea of world building we recommend if you're gonna do some fun world building, you should ha- it should have an impact on the people who are in your story. It should have an impact if you don't want to get into it, then don't. You can do that too. But uh, we recommend some good, some good world building. The biggest thing, though, the if there is only one thing you learn from this podcast is if you're sitting down to world build so you can write a story, write the story. You got to start <laughs> writing eventually. World tell build, the story. world build, world build, but then stop. At some point, stop. Tell the story. It's almost like you t- are telling the story until you uh, come across things that, oh, this probably would be affected by this major independent force that I have introduced. Yeah. Spend some more time, world build this aspect, but then get back to your story. Yeah. I like it. Cool. Um, I think that is a good wrap on the world building conversation. I think it's time to talk about our featured setting. Last week was featured character, Battle Butler. Mm-hmm. 
this week. Featured setting. Balls. Balls. I love me some balls. You've got um, big balls. Mm-hmm. You've got small balls. Yep. Balls that you just sort of enjoy with your family. <laughs> balls that you share with the whole neighborhood. Uh-huh. Where everyone comes and enjoys the balls. Um, balls with dancing. Dancing balls. Uh, Those tend to get sweaty. If, if they're not yeah. well ventilated, you get sweaty balls and nobody likes that. No just remember, f- less important than the balls themselves are what you do with them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't anymore. <laughs> what what has this episode become? This was supposed to be... I was supposed to give us a limit of anatomical jokes. <laughs> okay. Balls, as in the fancy parties you get dressed up for and then go to and have a good time. In case you didn't actually, figure out what we were actually talking about. I went to a ball last night. How'd that go? It was a, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was fun to get dressed up and to go uh, to see who else was there. We, we got, yeah, we dressed up in our best dress tuxedo. I didn't do a tuxedo. I wore I still a jacket. Want pictures. I have some. Yeah, I'll send you some. Please um, do. Uh, but there was some. There's some good food, like refreshments sitting out. Uh, there was good music. They had in the in the backyard. It was like you could go outside. There was a gazebo, and they had just like 50s swing playing on. Oh, dope! Just a, yeah, just a just wow. a playlist of 50s swing. So you could go out there and just like. Some of it was slow, some of it was fast. Um, cool. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You could go inside, do some dancing. Tended to be more slow. They stopped the dancing every once in a while to let like some couples who like had prepared routines mm-hmm. to sort of show off. That was a lot of fun. Uh, they had areas where you could go get your picture taken and in your nice clothes. They had live entertainment upstairs. They had a live band inside in the in the inside dancing. That was a lot of fun. Um, to dance to live music, I've never done that before. I don't even I don't even know how to dance. By the way, I um, I grew up, and the dances I went to were like high school dances, and that was that was about the sum of it. So I have no formal dance training, and I still had a lot of fun. So, yeah, it uh, it did make me think a lot about what stories, what what can I do with this this setting here, this ball? What could, what things could be going on? Uh, I think, I think typically, balls are a good place for like. Um, you can do so much with a ball in your espionage, story. Espionage, often spies, like, spies, yeah. yeah. Um, romance, but like in Pride obviously. and Prejudice, yeah, romance, um, society, not societal, um, socioeconomic sort of like uh, interplay. I think uh, people moments. Yeah, very well said. Very mm. people mm. moments. I think my favorite, one of my favorite bits in Pride and Prejudice is when Elizabeth's family is just embarrassing the whole family at this ball. Mary's singing really poorly, and <laughs> and the, the younger sisters being too flirty with all of the soldiers, and they just look bad in general. And the mom's talking about how they're going to get a really advantageous wedding because some young man, some wealthy young man, is paying attention to her daughter. They mm-hmm. all look super bad. It's a it's a fun uh, fun setting there. Yeah. I think my favorite instance of a ball in fiction is probably in Mistborn, where yeah. the main character goes and kills a bunch of people. 
Because that's how that goes. <laughs> like, that's a major – I really liked the I, – I agree. Mistborn is an awesome example of using balls because because Vin is not a character who's ever gone to a formal event. She grew up very poor mm-hmm. and had nothing. And then suddenly she discovers, A, she has powers, but B, she has to pretend to be a, a wealthy individual going to balls. So she has to lady. learn – Exactly. She has to learn how to dance and how to sort of speak with other highborns. That was a that was very good use of balls. Yep. And then the uh, the next series, the major character did come from a highborn background. Spent his life growing up preparing for balls, and you have Vin who came from not knowing them to to loving them and making them a huge part of who she is. To this person who grew up in this culture and society who's just like, yeah, no, I don't really like all these things about balls and it takes someone else kind of te- reteaching him. Okay. This is what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Wax. Wax. Ilium yep. Ladrian. What a good name. But, uh, yeah. Balls. Yeah. Balls. Put them in your stories. It's a good setting. But yeah. Put your characters in balls. Dress them up fancy. Maybe put a mask on them. Oh. Good masquerade. Masquerade ball? A good masquerade so ball. Good. a whole cup of tea. Oh, man. Oh. Hiram, do you have any anything, any closing thoughts, anything you need to plug? No, I just want to uh, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, don't be afraid to look at what other authors have done and take inspiration. Good tropes become tropes for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hiram coming in with the hot take. Steal from other authors. <laughs> We've said it before. We'll say it again. We've said it before. No such thing Steel. as an original thought. Yep. Take it all. It'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Huge proponent of theft in this in this podcast. Well, all right. That's uh, that's good stuff. Thanks for joining us on Folded Sheets and Story Beats. Join us next time. Quick plugs. Find us on Twitter at Woodhouse FSASB on Instagram at Woodhouse Elijah. Um, Call of Mercury is done, but you can find uh, the link to that in our link tree. Um, Reach out to us with comments, questions, concerns, complaints. We take it all. Gmail. We've got sheets and beats at gmail.com. Reach out, please. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next time.